I feel good today, don't you? I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no degrees from accredited educational institutions. Welcome to Encounter 52, A Valiant Effort. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the career of the Reverend Dr. Frank E. Strangis, one of the most entertaining figures in the UFO field, with a career spanning from the 50s into the 21st century. Born and raised in New York, educated at various places that may or may not have existed, promoting UFO stories, odd religious ideas, and his inner circle meetings, price undisclosed, Frank was a character and a half. There's a lot to get to today. This is going to be a uh, long episode, so let's get started. What little we know about Frank Strangis' early life comes from a eulogy penned by his sister-in-law after his 2008 death. Born in New York to parents who were immigrants from Italy, um, in the story ends there until 1959 when Frank and apparently his father, although this eulogy was the only place I'd seen a reference to it, when, when Frank and his father established international evangelism crusades, a, uh, a religious organization. He sort of bursts onto the flying saucer scene in 1959 with his book Flying Saucerama, which is a great title. Um, I'm kind of sad it was snagged all the way back in the 50s. And it was printed by noted ufologically connected and and, and prominent uh, vanity publisher Vantage Press. And it was Strange's first foray into published saucer work. And it's a, a pretty straightforward book, especially compared to what would come later for uh, The Good Not Quite Doctor. And in, in it, he provides an overview of the flying saucer field at the time. And there's more interesting strangest stuff to discuss uh, than flying saucer rambo which really is sort of a hey have you heard about these flying saucers sort of thing i will highlight however um a little bit from chapter six fakes frauds forgeries and foolishness in which he in a in a very short passage condemns hoaxes but hedges his bets in case some hoaxes are real it is very distasteful to a UFO investigator to learn of the existence of unscrupulous operators who pretend to be overly interested in the flying saucer mystery while, on the other hand, they have one sole interest motivating their actions. That is, to trick the honest inquirer into purchasing so-called authentic stories and photographs. These fakes are products of their own imagination. Trick photography has often been employed in order to mislead many into believing that they have received something genuine. Please bear in mind that, despite the forgeries and frauds, there are in existence today genuine photographs which have been taken by men of high repute and esteem, yet we cannot forget that where there is a counterfeit, there must be a genuine. Where there is a counterfeit, there must be a genuine. I, I am not at all convinced of the logic or accuracy of that conclusion. But it does put him in a good position to defend some photos as real and some photos as fakes as his needs and desires may dictate. He also, in Flying Saucerama, uh, blames the UFO cover-up itself for the prevalence of frauds and fakes and forgeries horge and hoaxes. The subject of flying saucers has created keen interest among a great number of curious investigators over the years. Because of the worldwide interest, many honest men and women are tricked and taken in. The U.S. Army has not helped matters much by denying the existence of the UFO, thus seemingly creating a shortage of information as well as photographs. Therefore, slick operators, knowing that this information is secret, find an open market to peddle phonies. Man is naturally gullible. You know, while it would be a good place for it, we're going to give the Jane Pauley uh, UFO clip that I've used the last couple weeks a break because uh, it would get worn out 
in this episode. But uh, imagine Jane Pauley saying the words unprecedented financial opportunity and just sort of keep that on a loop in your head throughout this. So next from Strangest came the pamphlet, My Friend from Beyond Earth. In it, he describes his initial meeting with the man we would come to know as Valiant Thor. Uh, And this came out um, in 1960. It describes what happened in late 1959. One cold morning in December 1959, through strange and unusual circumstances, I was invited to speak with a man from another world. This took place during an evangelist crusade, which I had the pleasure of conducting in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The invitation was given me by a person who, for obvious reasons, cannot be named in this writing. However, suffice it to say that the person is a born-again Christian with a sound mind and a good position at the Pentagon building. One of the things I tend to do, as you've noticed, for better or for worse, is to focus in on obscure stuff that often has nothing to do with the actual content. In this case, I absolutely love that Frank can't name his contact for obvious reasons. Already in the early years of the UFO phenomenon, unnamed and unverifiable sources are prevalent. Um, I must be telling the truth, otherwise I'd give you a name, wouldn't I? Strangest's religious inclinations and mindset emerge here as well and are going to be a constant theme throughout his writings. And also, just so you know, um, I might slip up, but I'm going to try for the rest of my life to refer to the Pentagon exclusively as the Pentagon Building. I had heard rumors in various states that such a man existed and was secretly being entertained by a few officials in high places. Sorry, another interruption. Sorry. Being secretly entertained is a phrase that has always leapt out at me, conjuring images of army brass and a space brother being discreetly ushered into the VIP room at one of Northern Virginia's finer gentlemen's establishments and Valiant Thor being very, very uncomfortable at the entire thing. Oh, okay. That's the last sort of interruption like that. Unless it's not. I'm No promises. The great morning came. The proper arrangements had been made. I was in a car on my way to meet and speak with a visitor from the other end of our telescope. I was then ushered into the vast network of the world-famous Pentagon building in Washington, D.C. I cannot possibly express just how I felt when I followed the outlined plan for me to pass directly through the security guards. The next thing I knew, I was standing in front of a closed door. Live from the world-famous Pentagon building. There's an irrepressible excitement that, as we'll continue to see, comes across in a lot of Frank's writing. And his excitement at getting through security is is one example. If he thought that was something, wait till he meets an alien. Wow. So chapter two of this pamphlet is The Meeting, his actual encounter with the spaceman. As I opened the door, to my left, there were three desks equipped with typewriters and other general office equipment. At one desk, which was back-to-back with another desk, sat Army Brass, busily engaged in what appeared to be paperwork. The other man, a sergeant, was typing away. None of these three men lifted so much as their eyes when I entered the room. It was though I did not exist as far as they were concerned. Then I saw one lone man standing with his back to me, looking out a window. As I approached him, he turned slowly and looked at me. It was as though he looked straight through me. With a warm smile and outstretched hand, he slowly started forward. I felt strange all over. He then raised his hand toward me in a gesture of friendliness. These interruptions aren't stopping. I'm sorry, and I'm nitpicking here. But did he raise the hand that had previously been outstretched? Or was one hand outstretched and the other raised in a gesture of friendliness? These are the questions that keep me awake at night. Um... It's the sort of thing where where sort of the hyper-skeptics will say, he was inconsistent about the use of which hand was which. Um, But I find it fun. Okay, let's move on to the visitor himself. His appearance. As I gripped his hand, I was somewhat surprised to feel the soft texture of his hand like that of a baby. However, his grip was that of a man. A firm grip that silently testified to strength and power. His eyes were brown and his hair wavy brown, also. His complexion was not out of the ordinary. It appeared to be tan. He was, to all appearances, like an Earthman. But he had no fingerprints. 
Now, as a former special investigator, I've studied some concerning the proper value and classification of fingerprints in crime detection, as well as other reasons of identification. His voice. The very words that fall from his lips were, Hello, Frank. His voice was very strong and mellow. It was filled with character and purpose. I then looked around the room again to see whether the other men would say or do anything. They kept on about their business, as though I was not even there. This is very difficult to understand, but there must be an answer somewhere. Throughout Strange's writing, he often brings up two facts, that he is a minister and also a former special investigator. So not just an investigator, he's special. Now he goes into an incredible amount of detail about the man's clothing. During our conversation, which lasted about one half hour, I asked many questions. I took notice that he was wearing the same type of clothing as I. When I asked if he possessed any clothing other than that which he was presently wearing, he stated that he had changed clothes in order to give the officials a chance to run exhaustive tests on his garment, which they did. He then walked over to the closet, which was directly behind the sergeant, opened it, and produced a one-pieced garment that glittered as he brought it toward the sunlight streaming through the window. Just as a passing thought that flashed through my mind, it looked like liquid sunlight. I asked him of the material from which it was made. He answered, It is made of a material not of this earth. I further questioned him as to the tests that the garment had undergone. In sum, he stated the following. They gave it the fire test. Temperatures above that of the melting point of steel did not even warm the suit. They gave it the acid test. The acid rolled off it like water from the back of a duck. They also tried to pierce it with a diamond point drill. As a result, the drill overheated, and the diamond point snapped when it came in contact with the garment. The general appearance of the suit was all one piece, even down to the boots. It contained no buttons, zippers, or snaps. I asked him how it held together. He demonstrated by holding the front together, passing his hand as though to smooth it out, and I could not even locate the opening. It was held together by an invisible force. Okay, this is all fascinating, but why is he here? He stated that he came in order to help mankind return to the Lord. He spoke in positive terms, always with a smile on his face. He said God was displeased with the fact that mankind is farther away from him than ever before, but that there is still a good chance for mankind to find salvation if he looks for it in the right place. He also stated that he had been here for three years and is due to depart on March 16, 1960, claiming that he would not use force to speak with men in authority in America, but would be happy to consult with them at their invitation. He further stated that thus far only a few men in Washington knew of his existence in the Pentagon, and few leaders have availed themselves of his help and advice during the past three years. The time of his departure was getting near, and yet he felt there was still so much to do, but his purpose would not be fulfilled by force. This is the first hint of Strangest's theology and doctrine, if you can call it that, and it's, and it's weird. While there are phrasings and concepts that are, that are Christian-sounding, salvation, returning to the Lord, but they're vague in, in the details. Looking in the right place, for example. Well, what place is that? You know, Venus? There's also the argument that mankind is farther away than ever before, and while it's not explicitly discussed, just looking at the context, it places this in the same category as other contactee literature in condemning the Cold War. But Strangest takes a very oblique approach, spending more time at this point on the man's clothing than his philosophy. And he also returns to the, to the issue of fingerprints. After I questioned him on having no fingerprints, he replied to me in this manner, Fingerprints are a sign of fallen man. Fingerprints mark a man all through his life. In all the theological discussions of original sin I've ever had, I have to admit that no one has used the but fingerprints argument. So where is he from? If you've been listening for any length of time, you won't be surprised. I am from the planet that is called Venus. Shocking. He claims that there are 77 Venusians walking among you in the, in the United States and that they're constantly, in his words, coming and going. So we've been infiltrated, is what he's saying. Unseen, unnoticed. It sounds ominous, 
but Strangest doesn't present it that way. The visit concludes, and Strangest finishes his account. As I left his presence, I still maintained a warmth in my heart. I began to wonder who would believe me if I ever repeated this strange encounter with a man from another planet. I first considered not repeating this strange story, but the more I thought about it, and the more I prayed about it, the more I felt it would bring a great blessing to those who would hear and read it. I also thought of the possibility of being involved with the government, but I decided to brush away all suppositions and fears and tell the whole truth, because Jesus said, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The interplanetary traveler possessed a wealth of knowledge, not only about science and about God, but also about me. He commended me on my book, Flying Saucerama. He stated that it could not have been written except with heavenly guidance. He said that soon it would be read throughout the whole wide world. Flying Saucerama was the result of divine inspiration. Take a hike. Paul, we've got Flying Saucerama. That may be the most outlandish of the many outlandish claims made by flying saucer figures over the last 72 years. So, according to public records, Frank Strange's established international evangelism crusades in 1959, and according to what's still out there on the internet, the last time the filing was updated, the organization indicated that it had annual revenues of about a quarter million dollars and a staff of five. Whether or not that's true is pretty debatable, and we'll get to some reasons why in a bit. But anyway, he billed himself as the president of the IEC pretty consistently at this time. So the next thing we sort of look at here is an article entitled Preacher, What About UFOs? that appeared in the July 1961 issue of Flying Saucer. Uh, Flying Saucer was a Ray Palmer magazine which had many old school saucerers like Gray Barker, August Roberts, and Jean Duplantier on the masthead. And at this time, Stranges had apparently shifted his base of operations from New York to California, citing Palo Alto as the home of the IEC. In 1960, thanks to a letter from the CIA to Stranges telling him that they had nothing to do with UFOs because that was the Air Force's deal, we know that in August of 1960, the IEC operated out of Glendale, New York. So Stranges' article, um, just from the addresses and throwing some stuff in my Google machine, I can sort of tell, okay, so this, at this point he's moving out to the West Coast, which at the time was a little more active in terms of flying saucer contact stuff than, uh, than New York was, but um, I'm not saying that's the reason why he made that move. So in this, he it's sort of like, should preachers in their churches talk about flying saucers? And what's the deal with flying saucers in the Bible and all of that stuff? And he provides a sort of negative explanation or a, a, a sort of counter explanation for flying saucers and, and the Bible and, and, and the relationship between the two and, and where the line should be drawn in preaching about such things. The Bible does not state that there is no life on other planets. It seems reasonable to assume that God, who created the universe in the first place, is certainly not to be limited in any way. Is it possible that God in his wisdom has placed life on other planets in our solar system? And what about other solar systems? That's not an entirely outrageous conclusion. And he also warns against clergy sort of blowing off questions about UFOs and life on other worlds. Therefore, if the members of the clergy will stop long enough to remove the dark glasses and cease from depending on dogma and vain repetition, and then open the sacred scriptures with the thought of proving all things, they will learn that the Bible contains many infallible truths concerning one of the greatest mysteries ever to face mankind. People have a right to know. Men in places of church leadership should not content themselves by brushing off the question of UFOs and comforting themselves with the thought that ignorance is bliss. If the members of churches do not receive the answers to these all-important questions from their individual ministers, they will seek elsewhere. The result may be tragic. In my travels, I have found people who have had to seek out the answers to this problem away from their spiritual leaders— have often been led further from their respective places of worship than they have ever wondered before. This is so vague. 
where is the elsewhere he fears people might turn toward? My suspicion is that he's referring to the more spiritualistic aspects of theology, but it's not clear. Perhaps out of a fear of alienating portions of the Flying Saucer readership. After all, this is a pretty broad-based publication rather than a, a religious or sectarian publication. Also unclear from this article is what strangest thinks preachers should actually say to their congregants about UFOs. Apart from mentioning his friend Val Thor, it's hyphenated, Val Thor, oddly, in this article, and plugging his books, he gives very little guidance for ministers who are looking for ways to talk about UFOs. In fact, if there are any great ways to give a sermon about UFOs. So things begin to ramp up for Strangis in the 1960s, and he, he comes to the attention of a number of ufological personalities and groups, usually because they had some kind of suspicion about him. Uh, the preeminent stiff-necked squares of the saucer scene, NICAP, had a particular issue with him. In 1962, Richard Hall, NICAP's secretary and uh, Don Quixote's sycophant, sent this letter to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. Because, remember, back in the days, if you had a question about something involving federal law, you wrote directly to the director of the FBI, which is, which is just weird, but it happens a lot. Dear Mr. Hoover, it has come to our attention through various references and personal correspondence that the FBI has, to some extent, investigated one Dr. Frank E. Stranges. Enclosed is a report prepared by the Committee on Dr. Stranges, which may be of interest. The letters cited in our report, including two in which the writers state Dr. Stranges implied he was associated with the FBI, are available for inspection here. We also have a thick file of letters from Dr. Strangis, or about him, which are not cited in the enclosed report, which we would be glad to make available to the FBI and to furnish copies of any pertinent documents. Sincerely yours, Richard Hall, Secretary of NICAP. What a narc. This was not the first the Bureau had heard of Strangis, uh, as this memo about Hall's letter reveals. Subject, Richard Hall. Captioned individual wrote April 27th enclosing information concerning Dr. Frank E. Strangis, who was implied he was associated with the FBI. Hall stated that in addition to the information he was providing, they would be glad to make other material in their files available to the FBI. A review of the enclosed material indicates that the allegations against Dr. Strangis pertain to a period in August and October 1960. In October 1960, the Seattle office conducted an investigation concerning Dr. Strangis after information was received that he was implying that he was at that time or previously connected with the FBI. During the investigation, no one was located who had actually heard Dr. Strangis make any such allegation, although it was generally conceded that he had left a number of people with such an impression. Dr. Strangis is an evangelist. Based on his background, numerous addresses and organizations with which he, ha which he has had, and the fact that he claims to have talked to an individual from the planet Venus, it appears he may also be something of a confidence man. The allegations submitted by Mr. Hall is of the same type developed by the Seattle office, and there appears to be no actual violation of the impersonation statute. There's also the suggestion that the Bureau office in San Francisco track Strangest down and tell him to cool it with the vague allusions to being connected with the FBI. Interestingly, the memo concludes with some words about Donald Kehoe. Kehoe has been known to the Bureau since the 1930s. He's been a freelance writer and a flamboyant style has characterized his articles. Some of the material written of direct interest to the Bureau has been found to be irresponsible. If anybody out there knows what Kehoe might have been doing in the 30s that attracted FBI attention, drop me a line through the usual channels. Among the most obvious things that Strangest did to imply a connection with the FBI was claimed to have received an FBI gold medal, I have no idea what that is, uh, at a police convention in Las Vegas. There's no record of this actually occurring. Given the animosity with which the NICAP crew held towards Strangis and anybody who pushed to contact the agenda. It might not be a coincidence that when Strangis established his own UFO organization in 1967, it was called the National Investigations Committee on Unidentified Flying Objects. 
an obvious take on NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, and possibly, you know, designed to create confusion in the marketplace. If you joined um, NICUFO, it really doesn't work as an acronym. Um, you would receive a one-year subscription to the UFO Confidential Letter from the organization, so a newsletter, special bulletins as they happen. Um, and it, it says uh, it, it says this, which is which is which is funny. Uh, quote: As an individual investigation, you can accomplish but little in arousing the world as to the reality of UFOs. Therefore, the National Investigations Committee on UFOs was formed, end quote. Listeners, together we can arouse the world as to the reality of UFOs. So during this time, in the mid to late 1960s, Strangest was connected with a guy named Raymond Brochiers. Brochiers is an interesting, uh, interesting cat. He was wrapped up with Jim Garrison's JFK assassination investigations in New Orleans and later uh, moved out to California and became a sort of a fringe religious figure and a prominent voice for gay rights uh, in California. And Brochiers would promote Strangers' events in his Light of Understanding newsletter. Here's an example of a sales pitch for one of these exciting-sounding UFO gatherings. UFO Space and Science Meeting Announced Dr. Frankie Stranges of Van Nuys has announced that on January 31st, 1969 in Van Nuys he will hold a UFO Space and Science Public Symposium. It will run for three days and nights with members from all over the world attending. Dr. Stranges has announced that the IEC may not be the largest, but by the grace of God, the very cleanest of any church group. For more on brochures and Stranges and their sort of relationship in the 60s, which consisted mostly of cross-promoting events and, and, and granting fake uh, academic degrees upon each other. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to an article by uh, historian Adam Gorightly, uh, a part of a series about uh, Raymond Brochier's that he worked on earlier this year that I really recommend reading. So, in addition to running the IEC and Nick Ufo, uh, Stranges also established the International Theological Seminary of California. Now, there is an International Theological Seminary located in California, but it has nothing to do with Frank Stranges. Rather, it was established in the 70s to meet the needs of Korean-American churches. Please do not contact them asking about Frank Stranges. His educational claims are interesting. For example, he claims in one interview to have attended Eastern Bible College in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And there was an Eastern Bible Institute that matches up location and time-wise, but he wouldn't forget the name of where he went to college, would he? It seems picky, but he claims to have earned three PhDs in, in criminal justice and, and psychology and, and theology and all sorts of things. But no real evidence of of him doing this. There's a lot of claims and not much to back them up. The FBI might have been onto something when they called him something of a confidence man. And it's in the late 60s during this, this period that we get the book that Strangest will be known for above all others, Stranger at the Pentagon. Now, he'd mentioned the meeting with Val Thor in previous writings. He would write subsequent books. Why is this one the one people remember? My theory is this. It was republished in the 90s by Inner Light Publications, one of the many companies connected with UFO impresario Timothy Green Beckley. Beckley's books were actually widely available and featured lurid cover copy that made the books sound forbidden and insightful. He republished a lot of Ashtar stuff, too. Um, the Commander X books were from Inner Light as well. And Stranger at the Pentagon, for example, bears a, a sort of looks like an official stamp on the back saying, not endorsed by the Air Force, not financed by the CIA, which is, you know, probably true as far as it goes. And this 1991 edition also cleverly undercuts accusations that the Valve Thor story was ripped off from the day the Earth stood still by proclaiming the book to be a real life the day the Earth stood still. So a, a bit of a deep dive into Stranger at the Pentagon. Now, the one I'm looking at is that 1991 edition from Inner Light. So your mileage may vary if you have an earlier version or a later version. I urge you to find the 1991 Inner Light version. It, it, it's, 
it's the coolest. The, the forward to the book, and you know, for, had been for a few editions, is by a guy named Harley Bird, who was nephew to Admiral Richard Bird, who, as we all know, fought Nazis at the South Pole after World War II. And we'll do a show on that sometime. Bird claims that he was present for Valiant Thor's initial landing uh, because he was, he says, working for Project Blue Book at the time. This is Harley Bird. In mid-March 1957, we received an urgent message from the Alexandria Police Department. The message indicated that two of their on-duty officers had picked up an alien who had landed some 14 miles south of Pentagon Boulevard, and the occupant was transported to the Pentagon to meet with the Undersecretary of Defense, and then shuttled underground to meet with President Eisenhower and Vice President Richard Nixon. The meeting lasted for nearly an hour, and then the alien visitor was put on VIP status and was shuttled back to the Pentagon where he spent the night in the Army reception office on the first floor near the concourse. The alien's name was Valiant Thor. Commander James was on duty at the security clearance and review for the branch officer of Project Blue Book. He oversaw the meeting through official channels and reported the landing and meeting of the space emissary, as he was labeled by the Department of Defense, to a governing group of high military officials, including Secretary of Defense D.F. Forrestal and other scientific men, of which there were 12. They, in turn, made recommendations to the president and cabinet members, the CIA, FBI, NSA, and so on. The landing of Valiant Thor was perhaps the first documented landing of a human-type alien by military officials. Now, there are a number of problems with this. Uh, the biggest one, just in the face of it, being that in, what is this, March of 1957, the Secretary of Defense was actually Michigan's own Charles Irwin Wilson, not D.F. Forrestal. The second problem is that there had never been a Secretary of Defense, D.F. Forrestal. There had been a James Forrestal, who had been Secretary of Defense, but he'd committed suicide in 1949. I mean, he had been murdered because he was going to tell everybody about Roswell in 1949. So that's, that's a big problem I have with Harley Bird's introduction to the book, and it really doesn't bode well for the overall veracity of the whole thing. So moving on to the text of the book itself, uh, Stranges reveals that Thor's people had been monitoring Earth for centuries and that in 1945, a hundred ships surrounded the planet to save us from a nuclear chain reaction that would have killed us all. Because of the nuke issue, of course, they made the decision to send emissaries to the nations of Earth, starting with, of course, the United States. Valiant Thor met with Eisenhower and VP Nixon, and there's a great attempt at dialogue where Stranges tries to approximate what Valiant Thor talking to Nixon sounded like. You have uh, certainly caused quite a stir for an out-of-towner, the vice president smiled as he continued. Of course, we are not totally convinced of anything just yet, but suffice it to say, we are checking and double-checking everything you say and do. When Sergeant Young from Alexandria radioed in and stated that you'd just landed in a flying saucer, we thought, he continued, Sergeant Young had flipped. Say, were you in on that UFO flap over Washington? You certainly had us all in a dither if you were. Now, I've heard the Watergate tapes, and there is nowhere near enough profanity for that to be an accurate portrayal of Nixon. Also, I'm amused at the idea of Ike and Dick seemingly knowing random sergeants in Alexandria by name. So it was during this time that Val and some members of his crew, Don, Jill, and Tanya, very spacey names, visited one of the contactees of the time, uh, Howard Menger, who was holding meetings in New Jersey. And we'll be covering Menger at some point. But at the meeting was someone we know from the Al Bender saga, photographer August C. Roberts. At this meeting, supposedly, Roberts took pictures of some attendees that strangers would later identify as the crew from Venus. In one of the photos, the supposed Val Thor is holding some papers, and Stranges explains that these papers contained a message from the High Council on Venus that would save humanity. Of course, this would upset the economy, so Ike said, no thanks. From here on out, we get a story that is basically very similar to what Stranges presented in My Friend from Beyond Earth. He gives a fake name, Nancy, to the mysterious source that had been unnamed before who got him into the Pentagon. And the conversation with Val is very much the same, including the fingerprints as a mark of original sin explanation. 
The conversations, however, are a bit more expanded, including this discussion of Jesus. We discussed the merits of Jesus Christ, how he gave his life freely so that men could enjoy the benefits of eternal life. I questioned him about a Bible on Venus, and he assured me that a personal unbroken fellowship with the author did not necessitate the printing of a book. He found it amusing that many theologians attempt to discredit both Jesus Christ and the Bible. The very God many have said is dead continues to lavish them with all good things. Perhaps they will, in time, permit the spark of divine light to again illuminate their troubled hearts. In answer to my question of what he thought of Jesus Christ, he said, I know that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega of yours and everyone else's faith. He today has assumed his rightful position as the ruler of the universe and is preparing a place and a time for all who are called by his name to ascend far above the clouds to where his power and authority shall never again be disputed. Jesus being the Alpha and Omega of yours and everyone else's faith is probably something that would come as a surprise to people who have a faith other than Christianity, but that's sort of the upshot of a lot of Frank Strange's doctrine and theology. It sounds like, oh yeah, it sounds like, you know, regular old Christianity. And then you, you look at it again and you think, no, wait, that's, that's, that's not quite right. So given the U.S. government's unwillingness to sign up for Val Thor's plans for peace and prosperity, he went home to Venus as planned in March 1960. However, the story doesn't end there because the Venusians Council, ah, let me say that again, the Venusian Council of Central Control gave him an assignment. He was supposed to go back and mingle with the Earth people. He and his crew were to, were to work on Earth and help those who were in danger, give them guidance, and only tell people who could be trusted what was really going on. Not the leaders. It had not worked going to Eisenhower and Nixon. No, the Venusians would walk among us and, and work at the grassroots level to make changes. And at this point, the book moves into Strange's numerous contacts with Val Thor, often in unexpected places, with Val just sort of appearing. Val told him that his people had been establishing bases all over the earth, with communications bases, as he called them, in private homes around the world, keeping all the Venusians in contact with each other, as well as with their spaceship that was orbiting the earth. Oddly enough, despite having some pretty advanced technology— they enjoyed and preferred to use more mundane methods of getting around when they were stuck on Earth. In order to blend in with others on this planet, they used public transportation to move about from city to city. For the most part, this would be by flying commercial airlines. It is amazing to watch the faces and reactions of people when these angelic beings come into the presence of Earthlings. Some will feel a strange sensation throughout their bodies. Some will giggle and not know why. Some will become very emotional. Perhaps tears will well up in their eyes. Others will be totally unaware that there is someone present who is not of this world. With each edition of the book, um, it got longer as it became sort of a running iterative account of Strange's encounters with Val Thor. But he was up to other stuff during this time as well. My research has uncovered the previously unknown fact that Frank Stranges did, in fact, give a presentation to the Bakersfield, California Rotary Club in July of 1971. So, take that, people who didn't know that. More well-known is his 1972 arrest for being one of two people on a plane that was transporting hundreds of pounds of marijuana. He did a little jail time and a few years of probation for that, and despite an expose in Fate magazine about his faked degrees and the fact that Val Thor probably wasn't real, Frank continued to lecture and write about flying saucers for a very long time. Honestly, exposés mean very little in this field. Worst case scenario, you can claim that the Men in Black or MJ-12 or the Deep State or the New World Order framed you, and someone will continue to believe you. At some point, we'll take a look at Stan Romanek or Sean David Morton for some examples of this phenomenon. Frank spends a great deal of time in the book on his own experiences, particularly the ways in which Val Thor and his brothers slash crewmates protected him from various attacks by evil forces, including the men in black. There's a great story from 1974 
in which three men in black took Frank to the desert outside Vegas and worked him over until Val and his boys showed up to rescue him. Frank was taken to the mothership and patched up. For peace-loving space brothers, Val and his pals don't fool around with the men in black. Don stopped our car, got out, and slowly walked to the rear. He gestured with both hands toward the black car, and within a matter of seconds, the car and the three men who were prostrate on the desert floor utterly vanished. There was no trace of the occurrence except for the disturbed sand and the rubber that had melted and run like water. Upon returning to the car, Don anticipated my question of their new whereabouts. He replied, Frank, let's just say they are now displaced. By the way, not only could the medical facilities on the mothership Victor One uh, cure and heal Frank's physical injuries, they were also able to, thank heaven for this, repair the eyeglasses that had been broken as he was being beaten to a pulp in the desert by the men in black. To prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future, these attacks from the MIB and, you know, Lucifer and who have you, Frank provides us with details of the Ring of Fire ritual that will provide divine protection. As a special treat, here's Dr. Strange's performing this ceremony with some members of the inner circle of his NICUFO organization. All right, that's all I have right now. God bless you. And I think we should be prepared now to do the Ring of Fire. All stand, please. Make a huge circle, please. Be prepared for the inner circle Ring of Fire ceremony. I feel tremendous power in this room today, so expect the unexpected. Expect something wonderful to happen to you. Will you do that? Repeat after me, please. Eternal Father, Creator of the universe, hear this hour my earnest prayer. Anoint my lips, my ears, my mind, and my heart with your divine flame of fire. Provide me now with perfect health abundance and longevity revitalize and redirect my energies into divine service touch me with your divine inner flame of fire and cause me to be the master that you intended me to be in the blessed name of the master and creator of the universe the Lord Jesus Christ so be it Amen I feel good today don't you? That is what we call an unenthusiastic response from the crowd. It goes on a bit more with uh, waving a candle around, but that's the gist of it. So Stranger at the Pentagon ends with a message from Val Thor himself. In it, he puts over Frank pretty strongly as a wise teacher. There's a bit of theology and a rundown of Val's job description as commander of the Venusian forces. He commands uh, Victor One. He heads the Council of Twelve. Um, he controls bases on Earth, oversees task force, task forces, um, conducts seminars on the spaceship for the indoctrination of those visiting from other star systems, and he, uh, oh, this is good, prevents atomic holocaust by exercising certain limits on certain human agencies. In the afterword to the 1991 edition, uh, Frank also includes a postscript he really doesn't know when to quit, in which he provides some helpful information that makes it clear he was plugged into the UFO and conspiracy zeitgeist of the time. It's a weird, abrupt ending that has very little relation to the rest of the book. Um, it's a blend of Bill Cooper's warnings about government tyranny mixed in with a little Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, uh, sort of end times geopolitics. And it just feels to me like he should have reiterated that in the face of, uh, quote, quote, 
Once the chosen have been removed, the president will take over all communications, media, mobilize civilians into workforces, end quote, that sort of thing. He should have just sort of reiterated the whole ring of fire deal and had people pray for divine protection. While Stranger at the Pentagon is the most well-known book that Stranges wrote, I'd like to take a look at one that came out in 1985, The UFO Conspiracy, which is perhaps the least imaginative name for a UFO book ever. This book is... I'm not sure what it is. In the introduction, Stranges says this. The story you are about to read is both strange and unusual, yet it will affect many of you in different ways. To some, this may represent a fantastic novel. To others, something that is about to take place. Still others will dismiss it as an account steeped in fantasy. It has already been stated that many have found themselves carefully depicted in its pages. Let me clear something up for you. It's a novel. It's a fictionalization of some UFO history. It's a love story. It's an ecclesiastical thriller. Yes, that is a thing. It's about David his wife Denise, and some aliens, Don and Thon, who were part of Thor's crew in Stranger at the Pentagon. It's about David's life discovering the truth of the alien presence and being persecuted by his church denomination because of it. It's insane. It begins in 1947, with David hearing about Kenneth Arnold's encounter with flying saucers on the radio. And then he and his wife listening to radio reports speculating about whether or not these were aliens, like the same day. This is not how it happened at all, but it's, it's fun. Is it possible that these spacecraft are visiting us from another galaxy? Time will tell. That is if, if the government permits the truth to become known. At that point, Denise looked into David's eyes as he reached through his car window, caressed her face in his large hands, and kissed her lightly on the lips. What does it all mean, honey? she questioned. It means, as he looked into her eyes, that all the information that I've been gathering since my Air Force days has not been in vain. He looked into the skies that were being painted by the master artist of all time. He could not help but wonder how much time would pass before the nations of the world would be forced into taking a long and serious look at the hard fact that we are not alone in the mass universe. So where did David get all this information? Don't worry, Frank Stranges has you covered on the entire backstory of David. As a former United States Air Force chaplain with the rank of major, David retired from the service on a medical discharge. Whenever the question of UFOs would be brought to the fore, a strange feeling would hit directly in the pit of his stomach. He was constantly cautioned to spend more time with his ministry and less time dabbling with mysteries that rightfully belonged to the boys at Blue Book. This was governed by a small group of men who occupied themselves gathering UFO information from people who laid claim to seeing UFOs on the ground as well as in the air. None of this makes any sense. What year is it? When is this taking place? Was he in the Army Air Force? That's not what it says, but later he's having World War II flashbacks. It's wacko. Just wacko. But following this UFOs on the ground as well as in the air stuff is my favorite paragraph, perhaps, of any UFO book I have read in a very long time. David's pretty, petite, 115-pound, blue-eyed, blonde wife of one year kissed him on the back of the neck and encouraged him to go on to the market for some ice cream. Bishop Ward was due at 8 o'clock, and she wanted to be ready for him. After all, a quart of ice cream was a small price to pay for the honor of being considered for pastor of one of the largest, most progressive churches in the diocese. I cannot stress this enough. If you don't have ice cream ready for the bishop, it's over. Turn in your collar, hang up your stole, file away your keys to the sanctuary, you're done. Other fun stuff. There's no comma between pretty and petite. So Denise is either pretty and petite or eh, pretty petite. We'll never know. Oh, and something else? The whole book 
is like this. It's a nonstop roller coaster of slightly incorrect flying saucer lore, church politics, and contactee meetings with Don and Thon. It's insane. David is drummed out of the church, which church, we're never told, and becomes a UFO researcher and speaker and lives a life that is basically Frank Strange's without the marijuana arrest and if it were an action movie. The climax is an international ecumenical inquisition where David is forced to defend the Space Brothers against church hierarchy. Which church? Well, all of them, obviously. Now, it's not a stretch that this is basically Strange's pulling a Walter Mitty type of deal, but the Inquisition stuff is hilarious. Here are David and Denise discussing the upcoming event. Now I know, she said, how Mrs. Martin Luther must have felt the night he appeared before that group of pompous clerics who didn't know their Hail Marys from their Our Fathers. Now, sweetheart, that's all right, smiled David as he continued on with his work. He thought of this latest development and felt an inward peace as he thumbed through another file containing recent sightings, landings, and contacts. He mused at the manner in which Denise had compared herself to Mrs. Martin Luther. Now, first of all, it's pretty clear that Stranges doesn't know what Mrs. Luther's name was. It was Catherine. Second, they weren't married until after Luther's appearance at the various councils that kicked off the Reformation, so Denise needs to read up on her Reformation history. The Luther comparisons continue. The scene was set. Theologians, Bible scholars, religious leaders from far and near were invited to attend this awesome spectacle. Clerics from various denominations and religions had converged on the sacred halls of the California Offices Auditorium of David's Diocese. The challengers were named Archbishop Townsend, Bishop Lear, and a newcomer to ecclesiastical debates, Bishop Fine, the latter being a well-versed authority on St. Augustine. It was known that he sought to make quite a reputation for himself by successfully burying David under the dunghill of his own error. Council of Jerusalem, Council of Nicaea, Council of Chalcedon, Council of the California Offices Auditorium of David's Diocese. David pulled his car up in front of the building. Denise, Paul, and Don accompanied him on this historic date. Denise felt a bit apprehensive at first, but later found solace in the fact that Don was with them. She was wearing her favorite blue dress that pleased David so much. The other three men were dressed in dark business suits. They noticed a goodly number of ministers walking toward the large oak-paneled door, dressed in their black clerical attire, complete with clergy collar. Several well-wishers approached David and encouraged him with words which he appreciated hearing so early in the day. He kept thinking just how Martin Luther must have felt the day he faced his superiors when he made the historical statements that resulted in the Protestant Reformation. Of course, he thought, this conclave today would not necessarily begin a trend, but it would have something of an impact on those whose minds had been forever closed by sheer ignorance. Listener, it will not surprise you to learn that David won the debate. Sort of. There's a, a deus ex Don that sort of happens. Don takes over the debate, first by beaming thoughts and information into David's head, and, and secondly, just by sort of speaking up and taking over. And the book ends with Don vanishing in a kind of weird alien apotheosis. Without warning, Don slowly started to dissolve, as did several others who sat near him. David reached out but failed to grasp anything solid. The religious leaders looked into thin air, then looked at one another. David walked toward Denise. The force field that surrounded the building melted. The authorities outside looked at each other in utter disbelief. The President of the United States made a grab for the telephone and demanded to speak to the officer in charge of the troops that had surrounded the building. Utter confusion filled the world, but for just a short time. The people of the world settled down and carefully reflected on what they had seen, heard, and felt. Young people seemed to know what had happened. World leaders made appointments with other world leaders to discuss the shattering events of the past 48 hours. As for me, I just sat down at this typewriter and have revealed to you as much as I could remember at this time. Okay, final rhetorical question about the UFO conspiracy. Who is narrating this thing at the end? It makes no sense. It wasn't in the first person at any other point in the narrative, in the prologue, in the introduction, on the back cover, anything. I 
have no idea what I read, but I read every word because I could not stop. And I want to encourage you to find this book. There's a reprint from a publisher that is currently reprinting a bunch of old UFO stuff on Amazon, and they very confusingly retitle it Strangers from the Pentagon, um, which I think is a little shady. But you can find original editions for less money on eBay or through various used sellers on Amazon. Forget Stranger at the Pentagon. If you want a pure, undiluted, 100-proof insight into how Stranges saw himself and his work, this is it. Over the decades, uh, while we're at it, Stranges' religious views veered ever further from what one could call orthodoxy, and part of his business was the establishment of an inner circle of his organization, the NICUFO. For an exorbitant fee, you would be able to get exclusive teachings from the good doctor. Uh, Most of these were, in due time, put out on the internet, probably after he died. For example, one called Where You Will Go From Here is an odd mix of The Secret and Prosperity Gospel. It starts off, step one, making plans for your future. First, make a serious list of everything you want. Step two, why you wish to make these acquisitions. Step three, begin to exercise faith. Step four, see yourself in a new light. Step five, the miracle of materialization will occur. A number of you, he says, will witness what is called materialization. You will actually witness miraculous things taking place before your eyes. Step six, ask largely that your joy may become full. Quote, we are now living in a time when there are tremendous shortages in the world. We are asked, even by governments, to cut back and be conservative. What I'm telling you is, the world is the limit. Ask for greater things to occur in your life. I'm requesting that you cut loose your faith in God and actually live in a state of expectancy. End quote. Folks, I don't want to be a downer, but I'm not sure this is a flawless plan. One of the nice things about Strangers' longevity in the field is that there's lots of audio and video of him through the decades that I could share with you. And there's a whole bunch I'd picked out to share, but we are we are closing in on an hour already, an hour of Frank Strangers. And this is um this is wild. So one of the one of the things I, I, I picked is um I, I gotta play you this one. It features Frank telling a great story about the time he and Commander Don, that's Val Thor's brother, met Alan Alda. Commander Don was flying with me on the airline, and across from us, this actor Alan Alda came in, and he sat down. You know, folks from MASH, Alan Alda, the actor. And we got to talking. He said that, where are you guys going? I said, Las Vegas. Oh, that's great. I hope you have a good time. And then we started talking about UFOs. And he was very interested. And I happened to pipe up and I said, this man is from Venus. <laughs> oh, he said, that, that's interesting. And how long did it take you to fly from Venus to the Earth? And he told him. And he got so interested in talking about Victor One that Alan Ola was asking about some of the specs of Victor One, which Commander Vice Commander Don answered. And then he said to me, where are you from? I said, Brooklyn, New York. And I said, well, you look like you make quite a, quite a combination of both. And you know, after we got off the plane, he stopped us in the corridor leading up into the main uh, area of the airport. He said, you know what? He said, I really believe you too. I really believe you too. And he said, the world should know about it. And Vice Commander Don said, well, it will know pretty soon, as soon as the motion picture, Stranger at the Pentagon, comes out. If this story is true, and deep in my heart I want to believe it is, then Alan Alda is a pretty cool guy. I found the video this clip came from at ValiantThor.com the online Valiant Thor fan club run by a guy who, if he is to be believed, is uh, 
is, is all in on Valiant Thor. Uh, the owner has attempted to contact Alan Alda about this, but to no avail. But he does admit that uh, Frank and Don might just have talked to someone who looked like Alan Alda. While Frank never moved entirely away from Flying Saucers or Valiant Thor, his focus did shift in later years, and his final major work was a video series about hidden messages and meanings within the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, materials on the ascent to mastership, whatever that means. He published a monthly newsletter. Uh, apparently, you can still get it. His uh, wife, at the time of his death, Julie, is, is running it. It's uh, 12 monthly issues for $125 a year. And until his death in 2008, one could also join the inner circle. What was the inner circle? Let's let Frank explain. The inner circle consists of those who have abandoned the old ways and have sought deeper understanding in order to benefit themselves as well as others. It's made up of men and women who are able to discern the difference between right and wrong. They that who have elected to follow the light no matter the cost. They are dedicated individuals who have a limited amount of power by now and have tapped into the very source of universal love and law. They have found the rich blessings of caring in place of receiving. There is indeed a secret of success and prosperity. The secret has been guarded for quite some time, yet the secret has been staring us in the face for many, many years. The time has now arrived for you to take decisive action, putting away old thoughts and ideas and reaching toward that divine goal that will actually change your life for the better. The inner circle is restricted to the doers and not talkers. Those who are doers are distinguishable from the talkers because of what they have received from the hand of Almighty God. This is a very important lesson for you to learn if you expect to ever be a part of the inner circle. Those who have made the choice to become part of the inner circle are individuals who can be trusted. They are selfless individuals who can be called upon at a moment's notice. In other words, they are dependable. They are the ones who will be sent with a message and for a purpose. Do you find that you fall into this category, or are you straddling the fence? Have you made up your mind yet? Are you at such an impasse that you do not know the truth of the matter? By all means, it behooves you to determine in your own heart and mind in whose camp you will operate. The inner circle is made up of a chosen few. The fact that you are a subscriber to the Interspace Link Confidential Newsletter alone does not guarantee that you will become a working member of the Inner Circle, but it's a good start. Many have joined for their own selfish reasons, only to drop their membership when their true goals were not realized. So how much does this cost? He doesn't say. But he does indicate that fees over and above the $125 annual subscription are necessary to provide for the two meetings every year that the Inner Circle holds in Las Vegas. And to join, you had to appeal directly and personally to Frank and, and tell him what you expect to do in the future. And, um, quote, if you have any fears, feel free to tell them to me. If you have any misgivings regarding your past, relate them to me in a confidential manner. I will keep your letter strictly confidential unless I have your express permission to share it with Commander Valiant Thor. Strange has died in 2008, and his wife Julie wrote a touching obituary for the NICUFO website. It has no mention of Valiant Thor, Don, Thon, Jill, or the planet Venus. A eulogy published um, at ValiantThor.com by Frank's sister-in-law, Edith Stranges, mentions his religious and spiritual teachings, but omits My Friend from Beyond Earth, Stranger at the Pentagon, and the UFO Conspiracy from the list of his books that she mentions. And that's fitting, because after a certain point, Stranges didn't really need them. Like most contactees, the actual stories were a hook to get attention, and that attention could then be focused on deeper philosophical or religious or political ideas. Is that what Stranges was doing? Maybe. In a lot of ways, the inner circle sounds more like a cult than a UFO group. Sort of a relaxed, casual sort of cult, but absolutely centered more around Stranges' ideas than around the Orthodox Christianity that Stranges used to dress up his name-it-and-claim-it intentionality ideas. But no one really connects that stuff with Stranges. Nah, he'll always be the valiant Thor guy. And I think that's okay, too. I think he would be tickled 
at the idea that, and I have no data to back this up, more people were introduced to the idea of contacteeism through Stranger at the Pentagon than through the work of Adamski or Menger or Van Tassel. The lesson here is that keeping your book in print is the key to a successful saucer life. Next time, we look at another contactee type, one much less well-known than Frank Strangest, and that is a man named Michael X. Uh, Michael X. Barton, actually. As we hit Encounter 53, X marks the spot. The Saucer Life Encounter 52 is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Thank you very, very much this uh, this episode for the work of the curator of ValiantThor.com. Thank you to Adam Gorightly for his uh, excellent write-up on uh, Frank Strange's and his connection to uh, Ray Brochier's. Uh, I heartily recommend you check that out. It's linked in the show notes. And also check out A is for Adamski, the giant coffee table-sized encyclopedia of contactees with never-before-seen photos uh, written by uh, Adam Gorightly and Greg Bishop, both uh, both big fans of the show and, uh, and pals of mine. So uh, please check that out. There's a link in the show notes to that as well. And um, we do have the donate button on saucerlife.com website. Still a little weird mentioning it, but um, send me any amount that you wish. If you wish, you don't have to. The show's going to keep going just as it always has. But if you send me a few bucks or whatever, I will send you something cool in return as long as you um, there's an email where I can send you something cool, some audio, some uh, writing that has never appeared anywhere uh strange stuff ephemera things i think listeners of the show might enjoy okay you can follow us on twitter and instagram at saucer life or email us at the saucer life at gmail.com you can subscribe to the saucer life on itunes spotify google play stitcher or your preferred podcast app through the rss feed on the website you can check out the archives at saucerlife.com. Until next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. <laughs>